Hi guys, this is Liz. I'm coming back this week with the second part of our interview with Emily Ford. As we discussed on Tuesday's episode, uh, this part is going to be a little bit more focused on Emily's personal experience running her company, Oak and Laurel Preservation LLC, and moving into her new career, which is actually as superintendent of cemeteries for the city of New Orleans. So this one's going to be a little bit more personal, a little bit less focused on the cemeteries in general and more looking at Emily's life. I know that we have unfortunately not had an interview in a while and going in, I was very ambitious about this, but sometimes you just have to make allowances for the fact that people are very busy, uh, especially over the holidays. I had a lot of trouble pinning people down and I get it. Everyone wants to spend time with their families and has to do shopping and all of that. So I mislabeled this. This was supposed to be Taffa Files 4. This is actually our third Taffa Files episode. So hopefully you enjoy it. Uh, Emily is a fascinating woman and uh, I think really compelling because she knows her stuff. Uh, In the episode, I talk about how she's like the combination of Ashley and I. Ashley knows preservation. She knows the hands-on techniques Whereas I'm a researcher, I look into the history, I'm much more interested in the facts and the books. Emily does it all. She could be a Ivy League scholar if she wanted to. She chooses not to because she sees what she does every day very much as a vocation. So hopefully you enjoy this. Uh, As with the last episode, we do use some four-letter words, so you'll notice that the explicit warning is up front. It is also a little on the shorter side, uh, mainly because Ashley and I had a long drive ahead of us from New Orleans back to Atlanta. But hopefully you have enjoyed uh, returning to the original format of the show, having both Ashley and I work together. Actually, Ashley takes the lead on this one after I jumped in front of her with my questions on the last episode. So hopefully you enjoy the return to that. Um, And I really do think that we're probably going to have Ashley back for a visit sometime soon. Hey, this is Ashley and Liz from Seeing with a View. We wanted to let you know that that little E by our podcast doesn't mean easy. It means explicit. So if you are sensitive to adult content and explicit language, we recommend that you don't listen to this podcast. Thank you. continue our Mardi Gras celebration with our most recent Tapophile. So for Tapophiles 4, we will be highlighting Emily Ford, who you heard from last week. Emily Ford graduated from the College of Charleston and has been focusing on historic preservation, particularly for the last five years as the owner of Oak and Laurel Preservation LLC here in New Orleans, Louisiana, where we are again broadcasting live. Today we are going to be exploring exactly what it is that she does in the world of preservation, how she came to get involved with this very specific niche of the cemetery world, and talk a little bit more about the exciting things about New Orleans cemeteries. I'm Liz Clappen. And I'm Ashley Shares, and this is Tomb with a View. So thanks for coming back again and doing another little interview with us, Emily. Um, Just to, again, recap, last week we talked about the history of New Orleans cemeteries, some of the unique challenges they face, and a little bit about preservation and maintenance of them. Today we're going to talk about 
what it's like to work in the cemeteries of New Orleans and the background of someone who is doing that on a daily basis. So I think a good place to start is with your schooling and where you went to school and how school and internships led you to where you are now. Um, okay, so um, I, I, my undergraduate degree is in history from the University of Florida. Um, and I think it's important to mention that I had a, hang on, 2006, I had a five-year gap between undergraduate and graduate school, um, which I think... Me uh, too. Yeah. Yes. yeah I, I, well, yeah. I think it's, it's important to note because I think a lot of people think that's unusual and it's so not unusual and it's awesome. It's, it, it's, it's imp- I think it's great to have some real-world experience before you go into grad school. Um, the average age of a PhD is 40. Shit, no, really. I didn't realize that. Yep. That's great. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm grateful for that. Most of the people I went to grad school with um, had already worked in, you know, some some variety of um, architectural work. Um, so, yeah, I um, moved from New Orleans to Charleston to go to the College of Charleston slash Clemson University's program in historic preservation, um, which was absolutely fantastic. Um, I loved that program. Um, I loved the people I went to school with. It was a really small program. You know, it was 14 of us. Um, we were sequestered off in our own little tiny bubble away from, um, pretty much everybody. You know, we had this, uh, the, the building used to be, uh, the, the, uh, program used to be housed in an old, um, dialysis lab. It was a repurposed dialysis lab. So we had a bathroom in every room. It was fantastic. (laughs) Um, which is like the exact opposite of working in cemeteries. It was really great. Um, it teased you, right? Yeah, I know. It was fantastic. I, and when they, they we, the, the programs moved, it's in a wonderful new building in Charleston. But um, when the architects came and talked to us and they were like, well, what do you want? And we were like, well, we have a lot of bathrooms and we really <laughs> like that, you know? <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, Charleston was a great place to go to school um, because Charleston takes preservation so incredibly seriously. Um, new Orleans really gets by this is something i say a lot new orleans gets really gets by because we have an enormous stock of historic material uh not so much because we are exceptionally good at preservation um charleston on the on the other hand is the home of little old ladies chaining themselves to to houses you know um so it was it was really really critical i think to learn preservation in a place where it was such a huge part of life um also the, um, the uh, Charleston is also home to the American College of the Building Arts, um, which is uh, the only four-year college that's uh, dedicated to uh, trade. And um, I, I had the really good luck of meeting a, a guy who used to teach masonry there who was working in cemeteries. So that's where I got to learn my hand skills. Um, and uh, I think that that was super critical as well. Like, I, I really had a great balance. And, and every bit that I did um, in grad school, including my master's thesis, was focused on New Orleans cemeteries. My master's thesis is 814 pages of nothing but stonecutters and tomb builders who were, who were uh, working in Lafayette Cemetery Number 1. Um, so it was great to have that intensity and also to be able to focus it on New Orleans cemeteries. I remember somebody told me that the College of the Building Arts has a pretty cool campus, too, that they have the, the old jail. jail. It's the old jail, yeah. Um, they, <laughs> Which you, you got to love when you can have that kind of crossover and preservation. They have great parties there, too. Um, it, it, it's a wonderful uh, school. Um, it, it, ha- it struggles with some stuff when it, when it comes to, like, accreditation because um, – and I, and I get it. Like, if they ended up merging in with the College of Charleston, like, you got to understand, this is a four-year college where, like, every single class is associated with historic trade, including, like, your math class. You know, um, if it got assumed into the College of Charleston, they would obviously streamline that, you know, and they've resisted that for ages. Um, so it's, it's, it's a really, really cool school. 
You know, I just bring that up because I think it's one of those things that a lot of times historic preservation and preservation technology, it doesn't fit the traditional college model. No. And that's because I think that in the United States in particular, we have moved away from trades. And most people who work in trades now, they do it through a type of apprenticeship. So it's very difficult to try to take a mainstream college experience and meld it with a physical trade that normally would be learned hands-on. Well, you, you have to, uh, when it comes to, I think, any graduate program, and I've, I've spoken to lots of people who, who've gone to lots of other graduate programs, like, the program isn't going to end up doing it for you, unfortunately. Um, like, the, I, I see that a lot with uh, graduate programs that even advertise hands-on work. Chances are that's going to be, um, you got to fight for it. You have to go out and you have to seek it yourself. Um, it, it was something that uh, I, I learned from uh, somebody from ACBA, from the American College of the Building Arts, talked about um, there are these temples in Japan that get repeatedly, like every like hundred years or so, they get completely rebuilt exactly the same way. Um, and this has been going on for thousands of years, so even though the buildings are, um, well, probably hundreds of years, but so even though the buildings are historic, they were only made a hundred years ago. But the, it's, a, it's a very... Uh, stringent guild system of the guys who who build those things and the ethic among those guys um, to their apprentices is that they must steal their knowledge uh, they don't actually teach those guys anything all of those apprentices coming in come in like sort of with this like Prometheus ethos <laughs> where they have to, to you know quote-unquote steal the knowledge um, from the masters and I feel like that's what grad school and hands-on work is is that you need to be finding it outside um, it, it can't be just like handed over to you. You have to, um, you really have to, to steal it, to, to eke it out outside of, uh, outside of the academic structure. Why do you think grad programs are moving in that direction away from the hands-on trades? I don't think they were ever all that close to it to begin with. You know, uh, I, I think, I mean, there's a lot of things about that. I think it's really hard. Um, I, I well, <laughs> um, I think that there is an American attitude towards trade um, that just presumes that um, that y you wouldn't do it if you didn't have to. Um, I, I actually, I've always wondered if it has something to do with the GI Bill, um, where after, like, say, 1945, you know, there, there's less of a barrier, at least among white people, to going to college, right? There's the, so. So, so after 1945, the presumption is you only, the only reason you wouldn't go to college is because you're not smart enough, right? Um, and I've had people tell me this, you know, when they see the, because I, I work outdoors in masonry, um, with my business, people would be like, well, you know, one of these days you'll be so successful that you won't have to do that part. You'll supervise that. Like, why would I do that? That this is the you know this is the skilled work that I have. So I, I think that there's a, I think that there's a already with the people who are running academic institutions like higher level academic institution, there's a disconnect for the value of that hands-on work. And I think a lot of the people who are going to graduate programs aren't necessarily. I mean, they're they're probably not doing so to go into trade. They're they're you know a lot of you know preservation is so immensely diverse. Every program is has to balance so much, you know, when like you have say like a, a graduate class of or a graduating class of 14 people where you have three of whom who want to become urban planners, you know, and, and uh, a bunch of people who want to work in, in lab coat conservation and a bunch of people who want to work in, as they want to become directors of nonprofits or they want to work for the SHPOs or they want to work with C for CRMs. Being able to lay a brick isn't necessary for all of those folks, you know. I think they're already balancing things, um, and and you're already you know there, 
for organ for programs that are already balancing things, it's I think it, you're asking a lot to ask them to also transcend worlds, which it really is. You know the 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 barrier between trade and academia. I think you know. this is where internships come in to, to potentially bridge that gap, though. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> that's that's the kind of thing, I mean, I guess for the Mason that I worked with, that, I guess that was sort of an internship. Um, but, uh, of course, you know, what what you're talking about, Ashley, especially is the program in Savannah. Um, that, that was the, the program that I, I was lucky enough to get um, where I worked for a summer at the, the city of Savannah cemeteries as a paid intern. Um, which is another critical aspect of this, you know. It's really hard to, to, to expect somebody to be an intern long enough to learn hand skills, which you're not going to do over 60 hours, you know. You're, you're going to have to do it over a lot longer. Um, so we need to be able to pay people to get into that. And uh, I was really, really lucky to get to um, be the City of Savannah Cemetery intern for a summer, um, which was, you know, working with people who actually do have some hand skills um, and who are trained in preservation, um, it, it was it was critical. I wouldn't know half of the things that I know. And that's to me at least the challenge for many people who, as somebody who was an older graduate student when I went back, I really struggled to find a job afterwards because I worked my way through grad school. I had a job. I had to support myself. Mommy and daddy weren't paying my bills. So a lot of people were able to take six unpaid internships that gives them years worth of experience, which mm -hmm. that's great. Uh, I had to pay my rent. So I mean, even if I was doing an internship, I could do an internship part-time because I still had to work. And so that's, that's a real challenge. And I think that being able to have access to good internships is a challenge because if you are an engineer, if you are in law school, you're gonna have a paid internship. Those jobs that you are coming out of school and working into, but in cultural resource management or in any field in preservation, it's a rare thing. Well, I would say that engineering programs, uh, even even when it comes to the, the value of uh, the internship, they're placing, they see a monetary value on those skills as opposed to, I think, when it comes to cultural resources, um, we have really skidded by on presuming that people will do things out of the goodness of their heart. Um, and, and we have cheapened um, the value of that labor to the point, you know, if, if we think that we can have unpaid interns or unpaid volunteers do skilled work, um, then we're really chipping away um, at, the, at the fortitude of our, our profession, you know, and, and at the longevity of our profession. Um, I, I used to work for the Park Service. The Park Service does the same thing. Um, you know, so you have 30 years of relying on volunteers to do all of your work and those volunteers go away, like you, you have no skill pool left, you know. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's one of those hard realities, but it's something that yeah. I feel like it's, it's worth talking about because it is one of the challenges. I, in my experience, you, you have like just two. You either have the people who mommy and daddy can pay their bills and, you know, they're, they're more hobbyists or you have the people who are like, well, you know, I'm gonna scrape by, and I'm gonna do whatever it takes to scrape by, and I. Yes, I I hesitate to put people into only two categories like that, um, but yeah, I think even people that have their parents pay for them to go to school, it doesn't lessen, like their desire to go into whatever that field is. They're oh, just more, no, 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 they're no, more no. fortunate to be able to to do that. Yes. And they're able to 
to be in a position to work those unpaid internships. But I do agree. Well, the unpaid internships should just not exist in the first place is the point. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's my bigger thing where it's just, like the fact is, is that most paid interns in engineering, are as paid interns, are making what those of us in historic preservation mm-hmm. make as a full-time salary. Well, and, and that's because... Yeah, I don't know. It's just depressing to think well, about. Yeah. But it's, it's something worth considering because I think that when we talk about these issues... We're just trying to give people perspective of how we get into the jobs that we are in mm-hmm. and what it takes. Well, and th- All right, what, what do we got next? What's up next? So we, we have your experience at the College of Charleston. Mm-hmm. We have your experience in Savannah. How do those two things translate into what you do next? Well, I mean, I, I lived in New Orleans uh, before I went to, to grad school in 2011, and my intention was always to go back. Um, I, I picked up the Savannah thing because I, I just, you know, it, it was there, and I was really thrilled to be able to go. And, you know, I met some some of my best friends. Um, that way, Sam Beatler and I are still really very close, uh, which is great now um, because we have this this dialogue over um, Southern cemeteries, which is just that, – that's only getting better, you know, uh, which is really exciting. Um, I came back um, to New Orleans and um, started my business. Um, and there was – at the time, um, there, there aren't very many people who do tomb restoration in New Orleans. Um, and I wanted to do that work. Um, I love the idea of being able to connect with families um, and supporting them and empowering them to care for their own properties. Um, and I did have a pretty great skill set to be able to do that. Um, so Oak and Laurel Cemetery Preservation uh, turned five last September. Um, I found it in, on, in September 2014. Um, in that, so I think I added it up, and I can't remember. I think in the past five years, Oak and Laurel has done hundreds of stone and uh, headstone and tablet repairs, uh, 40 full-on tomb restorations, uh, 50 blog posts, I think like 50 lectures. I usually do like 80 a year. Um, and it, it's been a really great way to be in touch with tomb owners, uh, with property owners in the cemeteries, getting them involved. Because um, it doesn't really matter. Like doing full-on restorations, which is absolutely a huge part of what I do, but doing full-on restorations is something I would love to never have to do. You know, as long as people are being able to maintain their properties, uh, maintain their tombs, um, get their kids involved, get their grandkids involved, um, which a lot of times my job is just encouraging people to have faith in their kids and grandkids that they will show up, um, <laughs> which is fine because it, it, usually that's true. Usually they will. And um, so I've, I've been able to, um, you know, kind of become a friend of a lot of families. Um, and it's, it's, it's brought me a lot of joy. Um, in Cemeteries the past are years. communities. Absolutely. It's a lot of times, and we've talked about this a number of times. I know when we talked to Brenda Sullivan, we discussed this, how in many ways the separation from cemeteries has lost the sense that, you know, even in death we're part of a community. And I think that New Orleans, it's, it seems like, even though that may be lost in certain places, you're working to try to restore that. It's also a lot easier when you have eight and nine generations in one tomb. Um, when the potential descendants of a single tomb number in the hundreds, if not thousands. You know, so... It's always worth having some faith that somebody's going to come back. Um, and as genealogy gets more and more popular, that, that, that is more and more likely. Um, so, you know, like I've worked on um, 
one of the tombs that I restored in two, uh, gosh, I guess almost four or five years ago, well, four years ago, um, the tomb was only reclaimed because my client remembered being a child in the 70s and having his aunt bring him to the tomb. And so, you know, 30, 40 years later, he gets really into genealogy and he remembers that tomb. And so he comes back to New Orleans from Mississippi, goes through all the paperwork it takes to get the deed reissued for the tomb, and now he owns it, you know? And um, seeing people get that involved is, has been really wonderful, and, and, and people can be that involved um, here in New Orleans, you know? Do you think the sort of Ancestry.com and 23andMe and DNA testing has produced a resurgence? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and, and arguably, do you think it's a yeah? Because I feel like Ancestry.com kind of peaked maybe 10 to 15 years ago. And it was mm. mainly a phenomenon I think older people were really interested in their tracing their genealogy. I feel like the DNA, I don't know if it's the technology, but it's a younger crowd of people mm. now who are testing their DNA. I don't really get a lot of fo DNA folks. It's still it's still geneal genealogical research folks. Um, and, and a lot of them are younger. Like, you know, the, I have a couple clients. So we were talking about um, genealogical folks. Um, yeah, it's still it's still mostly ancestry.com folks. I do a lot of research or uh, presentations to genealogy groups. I mean, and in, in, in Louisiana genealogy is um, you know sort of has its own um, ups and downs. You know, uh, when it comes to the Acadian migration, um, folks who were expelled from Canada and who are now known as Cajuns, um, there's like a pretty set list of like say a hundred families that that arrive, and you know. If you can trace your genealogy to any one of those hundred families, you know, there's a certain pedigree to that. Um, same thing with, you know, plantation owners, uh, governors, kings of Mardi Gras, you know, stuff like that. Um, so people are still pretty into it. Um, it is real fun, though, when it comes to some of the cemeteries where, well, any one family, well, any one white family, honestly, um, is usually associated with five or six tombs, you know, um, and how they divide it up. Um, who is responsible for what um, is... Um, you know, it's kind of its own family system, family tradition um, that that we get to play around with here, uh, which is fun and also, you know, a lot of stuff falls through the cracks. So in terms of your company, in obviously there's no typical day. It, that's probably one of the beauties of it, but what would you say the majority of your time was spent doing? Hmm. Well, I mean, the majority of my paid time or the majority of my time <laughs> time. Um, for mostly for my business, most of the the, um, the work that I get outrightly paid for um, is tomb restorations, which any tomb restoration can take. Um, I mean, a full, like, you know, smaller jobs, you know, you, we, every once in a while I'll get like, you know, things that take like a day or a day and a half. But um, a full tomb restoration will take anywhere from a month to three months, depending on how involved it is. Um, my most recent projects uh, were on the North Shore of Lake Pontchartrain in Mandeville, um, and those were projects that were paid for by the city of Mandeville, which is very unusual. Um, but those were three tomb restorations, so my average day was waking up at five, um, loading up the truck, getting on the Lake Pontchartrain Causeway, which is a 27-mile bridge, uh, as the sun was coming up, and uh, working in a cemetery until about two or three, and then getting back on the, the causeway, coming back. Um, and in the cemetery, it's, you know, it's, it tends to be pretty quiet. Um, you know, a lot of deconstruction of failed masonry and then reconstruction of failed masonry. Um, every once in a while, I'll get a headstone repair, which is really fun because um, compared to uh, large structural tombs, they're, they're relatively simple. Um, 
you know, uh, reconstructing roofs, tomb roofs is a lot of what I do. Um, if a tomb is neglected for any period of time, uh, it's usually the roof that goes first. <clears throat> and um, a lot more of my job that I, than I would prefer is reversing bad repairs. Um, is reversing things that were done with quickcrete, things that were done with caulk, things that were done with bondex or thin set, um, you know, things that are done with materials that are too new and too strong for old tombs, um, and they inevitably fail, and they are very, very difficult to remove without harming the structure. Um, that is a big part of what I end up doing. So, recently you have been working on a few other things, um, including blog posts, um, and a you've been helping set up a network for tomb owners. Um, so these are kind of some of the things that you do that are not necessarily a paid part of your job, but you do um, because you find them to be important. Can you can you talk a little bit about how you balance the need to be paid to live and your desire to help the cemetery community. <laughs> the truth is I'm, I'm terrible at it. <laughs> I know I'm terrible at it. And I'm I was, okay. I was kind of interested to see how that would go. No, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm awful. I've never been a good business owner and I'm okay with that. Um, you know, uh, what I say over and over again is uh, for those of us who work in cemeteries, we do not fix refrigerators. Like if we fixed refrigerators, I think it would be okay. A little bit easier to be more impersonal, a little bit less empathetic, a little bit less involved emotionally. Um, but that's not what we do. We work in cemeteries. And if we're not, if we're missing the point of what that means to the people whose parents are buried in a cemetery, to the people whose, whose ancestors may be even forgotten in a cemetery or, you know, were otherwise not treated with the, the kind of dignity they deserved, like that's, if we don't pay attention to that, then we may as well be fixing refrigerators. Um, and we may as well be a lot more concerned with the bottom line. Um, you know, there's a there's a part of me that's the lapsed Catholic in me thinks that sees this work as a ministry, and um, part of that involves taking a vow of poverty. Um, but yeah, so when it comes to like say uh, talking with well, it, the other things like organizing the tomb owners or writing the blog that I write, um, those are critical to the mission of preserving the cemeteries, um, and they also bring me great pleasure. You know. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's something that um, I love being able to just wander around at my own pace when it comes to researching um, any of the tombs, uh, any of the, the cemeteries of New Orleans and elsewhere, or even taking like trips to, to really understand, say, the River Parish cemeteries or the cemeteries that are um, in Acadiana or, you know, farther down river from, from New Orleans. Um, everything like that really... It, it, it sort of cycles into the actual hands-on preservation work because, you know, the, the knowledge base is larger, right? Um, so it, it's something that uh, I think I would do anyway and I would continue to do anyway. Um, specifically with the tomb owners, that was something that, that was born of necessity. Um, what, what Ashley was just was, uh, bringing up was um, the tomb owners of Lafayette Cemetery Number 1 organized into a tomb owners association to unify their voice um, with the city um, who manages the cemetery. And I think it was, it was, a, it was a revolutionary way of, of actually increasing agency of the people who matter most in the cemetery. Um, and I want to see it to be an, an example for any of the cemeteries in New Orleans and elsewhere. Um, so I was extremely proud to be able to help those folks get off the ground. Um. So you seem to well, obviously know a lot about New Orleans cemeteries and Louisiana cemeteries, um, so you might be a little bit biased. Um, what is your favorite cemetery? My favorite cemetery in New Orleans? 
Yeah, to I can start narrow with, to start with. To start Let's with, start with local. I can I can narrow it down. Uh, <laughs> St. Vincent de Paul Cemetery, um, which is on Louisa Street in uh, New Orleans, it is um, a cemetery that tends not to get the attention that it deserves, which which is kind of fine actually. Um, really, you know, um, keeps it pure. Well, the cemeteries are are uh, kind of the act of observing sometimes disturbs the observed. Um, you know, and some of the cemeteries that have had the most attention tend to be the ones that, that the purpose of the cemetery tends to be the most disrupted. Um, so St. Vincent de Paul, fortunately, is in a neighborhood that most of the uh, historic preservationists of, of New Orleans really could not have cared less about. In fact, they disdained the neighborhood. Um, and for that reason, they never came into that cemetery and messed around with it. And so there's a lot of original material in that cemetery that I think is remarkable. Um, also, the, the thing about St. Vincent de Paul is it represents a historic neighborhood that was so extremely diverse. Um, so it's, it's one of the only cemeteries where you can find a, a tablet that's inscribed in Corsican. Um, but, and that one was carved in Corsican by an um, Italian no, that one was done by a French stone cutter. But like, I have a whole collection of, of tablets from St. Vincent de Paul where they're like German language carved by a French guy, or um, you know, Spanish carved by an Italian guy. Um, and it, it's just it's a really beautiful cemetery. Um, and it's also one of the best visited cemeteries by by families, uh, which I find I I love going to, to that cemetery on All Saints Day because it's just it's packed, and it's um, it's a thrill to see that. Do a lot of the families still live in the area, or do no. they travel from very no, far? No, no. Uh, the extent someday somebody's going—I I don't even know—it would need—it would take an economist. Um, but someday somebody's going to write about the economic impact of white flight in New Orleans, and it's—you it, can't—you can't underestimate it. But um, that neighborhood uh, cleared out of uh, a lot of those those longtime residents in the '50s. Um, what I, I think happened uh, with St. Vincent de Paul is that. Uh, one of the highway bypasses happens to still go pretty close to that cemetery. So as people are going out to these suburbs like Metairie or Kenner, um, they could just dip down off the highway to visit the cemetery, which is one reason why I think that they're, um, there's still some pretty good visitation there. Also, it's just a, it's a lot of Italians. And I mean, you can always count on Italians to be pretty involved, you know, with their, their families, um, their ancestors. So what about outside of New Orleans then? There's, like, one, in thinking about this, the first cemetery that comes to mind is the first cemetery I really fell in love with, um, which is outside of Grass Valley, Oregon. Um, when, when I moved to, to Eugene, Oregon in uh, 2007, 2006, um, it was just a cemetery that we had happened upon. Grass Valley is, like, in the middle of nowhere, um, along what's, what's known as the um, Bartow Cut of the uh, Oregon Trail. So there's a lot of uh, uh, ghost towns out there, but Grass Valley is populated. Um, but this, they have a little cemetery on the hill. It's, a, it's an Odd Fellows Cemetery. And I remember being absolutely uh, fascinated with it. I was fascinated by uh, the appearance of care from the families there. A lot of the, the markers had been, um, if not duplicated, they would have a, a replica ta uh, tablet next to the old marker. So could you, they, there was a preservation of, of legibility. Um, there's a, a really cool marker that's in Slovenian um, in the middle of the cemetery. Um, it's still, I've, I've visited. So very much a pioneer cemetery. Very much, very much. And, and I've visited it several times since. And it was the first cemetery that made, really like made me uh, fall in love with cemeteries. So what have been so far in your time working in preservation in New Orleans been 
either the most impactful or just the most fun project you've gotten to work on? One of my favorite projects was a tomb that didn't have really any modern interventions at all. And it had just been neglected. It had just decayed. Um, and being able to be like that much in tune with the original structure uh, was something that, that really made me so happy. Um, but really every project that I've done in the past five years, which I've gone from, um, you know, small projects to um, I restored a, a 12 volt, 22 foot tomb in um, Covington, uh, an Italian society tomb uh, that was also 12 volts. Like I've, I've worked on some big guys, you know. Um, but uh, every project, every project, there you have to approach with humility um, because no matter what, you don't know what you're going to find. You don't know what, what's going to be, you know, what just like fresh hell is going to be underneath when you pull things off. And uh, that's, that's the arc that I, I, I will always want to come back to um, is, you know, walking out to the and being like, yeah, I, I got this. Yeah, no, I, I know what, you know, what this is going to involve. And then starting to remove the failed material and be like, oh no, oh no, oh, this is so much worse than I thought it was going to be. Oh man, I, I wonder if, you know, geez, this is, this is really bad. I wonder if I can do this. And like having those moments of self-doubt and be like, wait, no, no, this is going to be good. Okay, this is just going to work out. And then there's like this moment of complete disbelief um, that it is going to work out. <laughs> um, and, um, and really finishing up with this, this feeling of, of pride in my work. Um, and, uh, and also, and also like a nice, a nice slice of, of humility, um, because every project is an exercise in hubris and, and, you know, just kind of being put in your place that, you know, you don't know everything. You have to be approaching it with some sort of flexibility, um, and some sort of respect for the material. So, um, every project has been like that to me and, and it kind of, I'm kind of a junkie for it. Um, just to, to be able to have that, that process with every um, every structure. So you mentioned earlier how people have told you and asked you, well, maybe one day you'll be successful enough that you don't have to work outside, you don't have to do this, you'll just be managing it. And you said, why would I ever want that? But recently you have gotten a new job in the city Spoiler. of New Orleans. Spoiler. Spoiler. <laughs> um, so are you selling out or are you... <laughs> Is there, is there such a thing as selling out in this world? There is selling out. There is. Uh, but no, ab absolutely not. Because, um, you know, it, it makes me think, um, I was on, um, well, I, I, I am still a member of uh, the Louisiana Cemetery Association. And I go to these meetings. And most of the people in that um, organization are people who are in for-profit cemeteries. They're salespeople. They're funeral directors. And I remember when I got um, allowed into the LCA, I was just like, man, they're going to really let a fox in the hen house like that? Like, they should not trust me to be in that room. And yet they do. And it made me really happy because I've learned so much about um, the way that, that, that Louisiana Cemetery's laws are crafted. And um, I feel this way now. So uh, my new job is that I am the superintendent of, of cemeteries for the city of New Orleans. Um, and they haven't let a fox in the hen house, but they have definitely allowed, uh, they've, they've, they've definitely taken me on um, I am a different person than the kind of person who has had this role in the past, uh, which is really great because I can sneak in so much preservation. Um, and they, honestly, the city wants me to. Um, when it comes to missing out on hands-on preservation, though, um, I do wonder about that. Um, I'm, I'm really hoping one of the first things that I thought about when I, when I took this position was that I really want um, 
I really want to foster the next generation of people who do the work that I do. Um, kind of similar, it's, it's funny, because you know, to, to call back to this whole discussion we were having about internships, um, I think that like New Orleans doesn't have anywhere near enough people who have the skills necessary to do restoration um, as we need. We need, we need at least three times as many people, and we don't have them. And I think a lot of it does have to do with the fact that if we can't, pay, if we can't afford to pay an intern, we can't afford to pay a professional, you know? Um, so what I would really love to do is foster a, a, a new culture of people who are adequately compensated um, and, and who do have the skills to do this kind of work. Um, the term I've been using is I, I want a bigger boat. I want a huge boat. I want a big boat full of people who are capable of doing this work. And hopefully in this position, I will be able to cre create a good environment for that. Um, and, and, you know, part of that is going to mean, um, you know, hopefully teaching some hands-on work. Um, and, and also teaching tomb owners that hands-on work so they have the skills to do what they, they need to do. Because, you know, um, preservationists can do this work, but it's the tomb owners that are going to save all the, the cemeteries of New Orleans. It, 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 there's, that is the only way you save that cemetery, any cemetery, is by having the families involved. At least that's how it is in New Orleans. Um, so, yeah. And then I, I, I am allowed still to do restoration work in other cemeteries that are not New Orleans cemetery or New Orleans City cemeteries. So hopefully I'll still have, you know, some little repairs that I get to, you know, keep my hands on some bricks because I'm, I'm going to need that. I know I'm going to need that. And you're going to be able to keep up the education side to just maybe in a slightly different capacity and be able to continue your blog posts. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, I, I'm, I'm really excited for the... Um, you know, honestly, the, the, you know, having a little bit more security, like knowing when I'm going to have a paycheck um, definitely does give me some freedom to, to do, a, uh, do a lot more research um, and, uh, you know, spend some more time in the archives when I can. And um, I'm really thrilled about that. I'm really excited that, at the chance to do that without worrying about what I should be doing uh, for my business, you know. Emily is the ideal person, really, because <laughs> it's like Ashley does the preservation I do the research. Emily does it all. So I... <laughs> well, do you just, ever sleep? Just very yeah. geographically. I love sleeping so much <laughs> because I spent my entire 20s not sleeping. And so now I, um, I do not miss out on sleeping. I love sleeping so much. But I also have a cat that wakes me up at four in the morning. So um, I, I get an early start every day. Well, you've certainly given us quite an inspirational two episodes, I think. I, I can't wait to go back to work tomorrow now. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's been really lovely to talk to you, both through these interviews and over the past couple days visiting cemeteries, um, bars, and just seeing New Orleans and seeing preservation um, in a different light, even than I normally see it. So I always love coming down here and, and talking with you. And we did, yesterday, we did a tour of some of the upriver cemeteries. If you remember our Cemeteries in the News episode from back on the first week of January, uh, we did get a chance to visit some of the cemeteries along Cancer Alley that we were discussing, particularly in terms of the slave cemeteries um, that were going to be impacted by the potential for most of the plastics plant. So we actually did a live video with Emily that we're going to be posting on social media, so you can both see Emily and kind of get an idea of exactly what we're talking about because I know that it's one of the shortcomings of podcasts is that you always, can't always get a very accurate idea and even reading these stories and discussing these stories I didn't really understand yeah you don't understand until you're there so hopefully that will be kind of enlightening we we definitely took a walk through and we we, we saw some shit so uh 
she has, I think it's one of the great things. We, we've talked a lot about New Orleans cemeteries, but Emily is so knowledgeable about her entire region, about the cultural underpinnings, which I think, frankly, is one of the reasons that we all wanted to start this is because cemeteries are not stagnant objects, and they really do have a very complex story, and it's, it's difficult to understand sometimes. So hopefully it will give you a little bit more of an insight um, beyond, say, I don't know what a ghost tour might tell you. But um, I think that we have, this is, this is definitely going to be on the shorter side, but because we did separate this out into two episodes, um, that way we don't overtax poor Emily too much. <laughs> but uh, hopefully this gives you a little bit of an idea because, you know, through all of the interviews that we've done, I'm trying to expose you to as many different facets of the cemetery world as possible. And even though, you know, Emily learned under Sam, what she and Sam do every day is very different. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting, I think, because that way you can see that even in, you know, you know, corporate structures and even in municipal structures, not every cemetery is created equal. And especially I know we have listeners who are from across the country and who have very different experiences. This hopefully gives you some perspective in the fact that, like, your cemetery is not unusual. Different cemeteries have different needs. So hopefully that accurately depicts that. Um, as always... We appreciate everyone who has followed, who has rated, who has reviewed. Please continue to do so. It does help us incredibly in terms of being more visible, getting pushed up the charts, particularly on Apple Podcast and Spotify, but across all listening platforms, we do not discriminate. Uh, I just know the statistics and we're mostly on Apple Podcasts. Also, feel free to follow along on social media. On Facebook, we are Tomb with a View Podcast on Instagram tomb period with period a period view also you can always check out any of the resources that we use for our episodes as well as different content on our website www.tombwithaview.weebly.com that's w-e-e-b-l-y and lastly if you want to get in contact us with us via email we are tomb with a view podcast at gmail.com as always if there's anything that you're interested in hearing about or you have questions comments concerns feel free to reach out but for now, thank you again, Emily, for joining us, giving us your time and your wisdom. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. But for now, I'm Liz Clappin. And I'm Ashley Shares. And, and this, this is Tomb with a View. view.